0: Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories, I wanted to share that I recently recorded a guest appearance on Jerry Landry's Presidencies of the United States podcast. If you haven't checked out Presidencies of the United States, Jerry takes a deep dive approach to presidential history, recording dozens of episodes on each president to fully flesh out their story. In our conversation, titled S-A-T-T-008, Charles Lee, we discuss one of the first attorney generals in U.S. history and what they can teach us about playing hooky when you really just don't feel like doing your job. If you want to check that out, it's episode SATT 008, Charles Lee, of the Presidencies of the United States podcast. All right, on with the show. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 26C, an interview on Theodore Roosevelt and the advent of the bully pulpit with Harold Holzer. I am excited to welcome Harold Holzer back to the show today. Harold is the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College in New York City, He's the chairman of the Lincoln Forum and author of The President Versus the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the founding fathers to fake news. Uh, Harold also recently appeared in the CNN docuseries Lincoln Divided We Stand. I last spoke with Harold last spring for an episode about Lincoln's relationship with the press. And today we're going to be talking about Teddy Roosevelt's relationship with the media. We all know who Theodore Roosevelt is. We can all summon an image of him in our heads. And that's not by accident. TR was like a quantum leap forward from his predecessors in how he used the media to his benefit. I can't wait to dive into it with Harold. Uh, Harold, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Kenny. It's good to be back with you.
0: Let's start with the claim I just laid down. How different was TR's approach to the press from that of presidents who preceded him? Was he doing anything radically different?
1: The thing I guess he was doing that was not different that um, presidents from uh, uh, Jefferson to Jackson to Lincoln had all done uh, and done well for those for those guys in terms of how they manipulated their image and got the attention they wanted, but also drew fire from from press of different political parties. Is that's a long sentence? Is what he did that was. Uh, the same was court the press. Um, and each of those presidents did so in kind of an unprecedented manner they, and, and that some people disapproved of in their own times. And we can talk more about the differentiation. But, I mean, T.R. was the perfect person at the, at the, for the moment that he accidentally became president because, uh, A, the modern media was really gearing into action Washington correspondents were um, proliferating, not you know, much more than during the Civil War when many of the major reporters were out on the battlefield, frankly, that's where the good, the good writers went. Um, Roosevelt also became president at the beginning of the news era, as opposed to political, overt political journalism, maybe really on the tail end of the yellow journalism era in many ways although he was kind of cut out for that as well. So um, in an era when headlines and, and scoops were more important than, than a, let's say in Roosevelt's case, a Republican writer praising him and a Democratic writer attacking him day after day, this is a guy who made headlines. So he capitalized on that new uh, press culture. Uh, but as, as you implied in, with your question, which I think you asked about 10 minutes ago, I apologize. The answer is that he was, he, he loved it. He coveted it and he went after it.
0: And now TR the white house was hardly his first brush with the press. Uh, right. There are stories and political cartoons of him as a rough rider, a police commissioner. Um, I, I think that probably as a 23 year old state assemblyman, when does he first start interacting with the press, and what's his relationship with them like initially?
1: I'm surprised that he didn't edit his own birth notice. <laughs> That's how early, because as you as you said, he was a really young uh, member of the assembly. And what he did when he got to Albany, um, where it's even colder than it is in New York, <laughs> I, um, I used to go up to Albany every January for the State of the State message. It was so cold that you used to get cramps in your calves when you, if you walked across the street too quickly, that's, 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 a will stick story.
0: to Seattle. Thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know it's all you have is rain. We have cold. Mm-hmm. So he introduced a bill to sort of guarantee extra press freedom to make it harder to prosecute uh, libel cases. So that made him a darling of the press. And uh, you mentioned his police commissioner days. Well, Uh, unlike most police commissioners, actually very much like the police commissioners of the modern, our own era, Um, but uniquely to his period, Roosevelt went to the scene of disasters and major crimes and, uh, you know, um, he was there on the scene and it was so strange. He always managed to wake up a reporter and have the reporter (laughs) meet him on the scene. And some of these people, who accompanied him were uh, future press giants like Lincoln Steffens, who hung around with him as he made the rounds. So he learned early to be nice to journalists, whom the ones he liked, and to <laughs> court them and to have them there to take note of his uh, personality and his achievements.
0: Now, did he just kind of like by chance by personality by the way his raised land on his relationship with the press and how he'd act toward them like right out the gates at that young age or does his approach toward the media evolve and develop through his life or career are there any learnings
1: that's a good question so there was some evolution which i i can get to in a second but i think that in initial zeal and hunger for attention for the spotlight you know the famous story that um T.R. wanted to be the um, the bride at every wedding, the corpse <laughs> right. at every funeral, yeah. and the baby at every christening. I don't think I got that in the right order. And I think that was his nature. And he was good at it. You know, as you mentioned, later in life, when he charges up San Juan Hill, there are lots of people to record his Rough Rider experience. When he goes out west to nurse his wounds after his wife and mother die. It's very well publicized when he goes into the northwest. Um, I think there, it's just that by the. I mean, I think Roosevelt said, "Come and follow me as I lapse into depression." I think he's. It was just that he was newsworthy by that point. But you ask an intriguing question, and I, whenever you ask me questions, Kenny, I think that there are things I should have approaches I should have taken in my book. (laughs) Yeah, because it's a really good question. He did. He did. So he didn't evolve. It's hard to evolve from a fever pitch about <laughs> press coverage to something more. Right. Um, but where he did evolve is he began, well, first of all, he began writing for magazines. So that's a, that, make, that puts him in a different category. And I mean a lot of articles and serious articles that really reflected his personality. It, it's, he was the kind of writer that knew his voice and could write his voice. And then the second thing is he got these journalists some of whom he had known for years, um, to help him implement progressive policy when he became president. I mean, the day that he was sworn, when he got to Washington after being sworn in uh, following McKinley's assassination, he walked around the streets of Washington with a few progressive journalists. Maybe Lincoln Steffens was one of them. Um, and it was a, they noted the marked contrast. The the city was very quiet. McKinley was very popular, and Roosevelt is walking around the streets, beating his hands into his, his fist into his hands, and saying, "This is terrific. This is going to be the start of a new era." And they were kind of astonished at his, you know, blatant, undisguised enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. and McK- I think it was the day of McKinley's funeral, uh, wow. up, you know, in, in in wherever he was being buried, Ohio, I guess. Um, And Roosevelt was in a celebratory mood. Then he invited them all back to the White House. And in no uncertain terms, he said, I need you to help me. You guys write the stories about the big business trusts who are abusing workers and conniving on prices and shorting on supply and driving American consumers and workers to the brink. So they began writing what later became. uh, what later came to be called muckraking journalism. And Roosevelt um, you know, would read his speeches to them and they would submit his articles in advance to him. So that was, an, that was certainly an evolution. So it was, as the magazine became a much more influential thing than newspapers and began expressing opinions just as newspapers stopped doing opinions on the front page, Roosevelt was right onto that change.
0: So, so this is crazy to me. You know, you and I were both former journalists, and you know, you sit in the newsroom, maybe with your editor, you think of what your stories are going to be. And so these guys are sitting with Teddy Roosevelt discussing what their stories are going to be. Like, can you elaborate uh, on that? <laughs> I
1: know. I'm just thinking back. I mean, I was a journalist 50 years ago, br- and briefly. Not like <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you had a longer career. Uh, you know. I've known tons of tons of journalists in New York yeah. and nationally over the years. Yeah, I mean, there are newspaper men who were called in by presidents. Um that's that's a tradition that goes back. I mean, Jackson yep. made his, made sympathetic editors members of his kitchen cabinet. Yes. Lincoln gave them jobs in the administration. Yes. Um and uh, uh you know there were a couple of editors who would come and talk to him in the White House about the war. Um but these were editors. You see Roosevelt is operating in a time when the political editors are gone. And Roosevelt did not call William Randolph Hearst <laughs> right. or, or Mr. Sulzberger in yeah. Um, he would he would deal with reporters So, mm-hmm. and we can get into the Barber's Hour, which, of course, is his his yes. manipulation. But in terms of, yeah, it is certainly odd for a president to dictate um, or to welcome or to edit or to be the first audience, the first ears for a major piece uh, in a, you know, an investigative piece. Yeah, I think you would I think you would probably be attacked today although you know not no one is really no one is fatally wounded by anything today the press i mean i'd rather might
0: disagree but yeah yeah
1: yeah but you know you can yell at the press and call them stupid and that's a terrible question it didn't change donald trump's position i mean he's never had more than 48 percent popularity but it doesn't doesn't hurt him among the people who like him and uh so you know but in those days, if you, let's say in the 50s and 60s and 70s, yeah. if, uh, you know, Walter Lippmann was not only criticized for seeing Lyndon Johnson in the White House and, and advocating his Vietnam escalation, he kind of lost his career once the war uh, became unpopular. I mean, he was an old man by today's standards. He was like 77, 78. As I'm beginning to look at that on the horizon, I don't think it's so old anymore. I was going to say uh,
0: very young, very young, Harold. <laughs>
1: but but Lippmann um, quit. You know, he said, and he said, "I'd been used by him. And mm-hmm. The war it was a, te- the escalation was a, was a terrible idea, and I was kind of duped into it." He told his friends.
0: Okay, so I, I'm going to come back to TR and the White House in a bit. I want to go back to kind of the development of his career, and and did the press, did his relationship with the press help him develop his career? You know, like if he had not known how to work the media, would he have ever become a governor or a police commissioner or, or president, you know?
1: Well, I don't want to minimize the fact that he was enormously gifted yeah. and enormously energetic. I mean, he worked all hours. He read a book a day, they say. Um, he wrote um, his own speeches. He wrote, again, articles, newspe- uh, newspaper um, uh, and magazine pieces so i don't want to say that he would not have been successful he might not have talked his way into becoming um a gubernatorial candidate when the party regulars didn't like him right. uh, uh, but he did because he was so popular and um you know he was he manipulated himself to be a very available vice presidential selection by the convention of uh, i guess it was uh, um
0: 1900
1: Hmm. um but you know there's an element of enormous talent at work the other thing about roosevelt that you know the press is not going to be covering him simply because roosevelt needs them to advance himself they cover him because as they say in the business he's terrific copy
0: yeah
1: i mean he's he he is has he's an exaggerated personality who will say anything that's on his mind. And um, you know, this is a guy who, um, you know, goes on these walks every day. Who gets rid of the? Uh, you don't want me to jump to the presidency, but you know his exercise routine. He's a self-made uh, weakling who converted from a, a, a weak kid into a, a tough guy. Yeah. He liked boxing. He wore those um, the the glasses on a ribbon, the pince-nez glasses. He gestured broadly he was a great personality. So why it was in the interest of the press to give the public what they thought was entertaining and uh, and and Roosevelt was entertaining.
0: And and okay, so let's jump to the presidency. Uh, In particular, the, the one really interesting aspect or one of many really interesting aspects of TR, he is the first accidental president, the first vice to reach the White House because the president died. To be successful enough to win re election. Okay. You know, I was
1: wondering how you were going to end the sentence. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right. you
0: know, John Tyler couldn't do that. Millard Fillmore couldn't do it. Andrew Johnson, Chester Arthur. You have four guys who have been in these shoes before and, and failed, often spectacularly. How important was his media savvy to making re election possible for himself and to making himself a success?
1: Well, one of, I mean, very important, but he also was. Smart enough to shift the national attention from, um, you know, imperialistic designs on, on, uh, on, on Cuba or whatever that was, you know, a fake war, a real war, right. a short and fun war, as John Hay put it, um, to domestic concerns. And he shifted into this populist mode that was extremely appealing. Uh, to a majority of voters, and won him Democrats as well as progressive Republicans. So um, he turned himself immediately to domestic policy. It's true, he built the Panama Canal, but that was, you know, seen in many ways as a, as an act of commerce, aggressive commerce pursuit, as opposed to, uh, you know, the the usual way, which is war and uh, the brink of war. So the, the the public liked liked him, uh, and I think that's why he was successful. Johnson, for all of his rallies and his uh, appeal yeah. to racism, he was the first president to do rallies. I think that point was made um, by a historian named Brenda Wineapple that he, when he was thwarted by Congress, he 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 held rallies, which I found a really interesting yeah. observation. Yeah, you know Arthur was on. Un- Impressive, Tyler uh, was viewed so ardently as an accident that, uh, and also of a different party. Yeah. So, but it is a great point that Roosevelt, um, I mean, the, the the list is still very short, right? I mean, you have to, Lyndon Johnson, who else? I guess Truman won by yeah. the sin of his teeth. Johnson won overwhelmingly. Uh, and uh, Gerald Ford uh, failed.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
1: So yeah, it's a it's a small group that has been a, a tiny group that's been successful, and they're all big personalities, aren't they? The, the <laughs> T. R. Truman and Johnson.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh Theodore Roosevelt called the presidency a bully pulpit. What did he mean when he said that? Let's let's elaborate on that term and why he's going with there.
1: I know it's a great term, and it's still it's still out there. A lot of his. Great phrases are still in the national vocabulary. Trial balloons, um, huh. uh, uh, things like leaks. Those are all things that he invented. Uh, at least the, the, he didn't invent them, but he invented the terms. Wow. And uh, and and muckrakers. He invented that. We should get to that because he had a, a an evolving vision of what a muckraker was. But to to Roosevelt, the as as the first president who sought political coverage on a daily basis with daily briefings and, and aggressive overtures toward the press and, you know, aggressive uh, pushback lawsuits. You know, um, Donald Trump is not the first person to sue journalists. Mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt is the first person, just the first president to sue journalists and the first president to be sued by, by people for things he said in the papers. Yeah. Um, um, so, he he decides the presidency affords him the opportunity to to campaign actively, not just for office, but for policy change. So he goes out and beats the drums for trust busting uh, and things like that. And that's what he calls I'm using the bully pulpit. And he was a bully, you know, in a in a non judgmental way. He was, uh, uh, but it's a great phrase, like all of his great phrases.
0: I'm curious. He always, you know, his exclamation, Oh, bully, almost like an excited thing. Did did bully mean something different back then or did it mean as today? Like, I know I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat you guys into submission.
1: That's a good, I think it meant both. It meant I think both. it yeah. meant beating into submission, but bully meant great. Uh, you're right. That's a very good point. He did say that all the time, yeah. um, but that has not endured as a, uh, <laughs> not. a phrase. I think cool is the equivalent of bully today.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. cool.
1: Um <laughs> But but the bully pulpit has endured.
0: Awesome. Uh, can you give any specific stories of how he used the bully pulpit to rally uh, public pressure and swing Congress behind him on an issue?
1: Sure. He made uh, speeches. He often published his speeches. He he campaigned throughout the country. Um, he gave messages to Congress, not just the annual message. He appeared before Congress and gave special messages. Um, so he was out on the hustings he traveled he rode horseback uh, spoke to the press from horseback um but you know in, what roosevelt didn't have and maybe it's a good thing because the few recorded versions of his uh his speech his speeches don't sound very much like um like they fit the you know he's like a silent film star there are newsreels right. but when the voice is attached It's like the equivalent of uh, John Gilbert trying to do sound movies after the talkies came in. He had a, he spoke uh, somewhat similarly to his cousin Franklin. He had a high tenor voice and a, uh, you know, not a Hudson river accent because that was the democratic Roosevelt's had the Hudson river accent, but he had uh, the, the, the long Island elite accent, which is almost the same you know, so it was a person, not a person. Uh, uh, and um, wow. Yeah. So he sounded like he was pretty high toned. Um, I'm always amazed to hear these voices because Woodrow Wilson's voice was kind of gravelly like this, which yeah. you wouldn't expect. Although the only recording we have of him is when he was old, you know, at the mm-hmm. end of his life. Mm-hmm. That's when radio came in. So um, um, it was through the press it was in speeches and it was through his own writing so it's not what we it's not like uh uh joe biden going to atlanta and giving uh, a speech on voting rights um with everyone lined up and prearranged.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. um it was a constant drum roll and i think that's what he meant by it as opposed to the literal image which is of a podium with right. an outsized personality, right. using that pulpit.
0: Uh, okay, Now, you mentioned that you wanted to get more into the muckrakers. I, tell me more about what's going on there.
1: Well, I just think it's an example of how um, Craven, Tr, could be in a way. Yeah. So he encourages Lincoln Steffens and he encourages Ida Tarbell to write about the Rockefeller Trust. He encourages um, Ray Stannard Baker to fill his magazine with, um, and Richard Watson Gilder. All of these uh, writers and editors are on his side. And when I say that Roosevelt coined the phrase muckraker, I don't mean that he did it in an admiring way or at the beginning of their campaign to ballast his programs with their exposés. He actually gave a speech to one of the press groups, the Gridiron Club, or I think it was the Gridiron Club, um, and which still exists. Mm-hmm. And he said he had gotten really angry that a senator had been, uh, you know, run through the the uh, quote the gauntlet of the press and attacked, and it was someone Roosevelt liked. And he went to the Gridiron Club and he 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 said, you know, there is a kind of person who swallows in the mud who digs through the mud it's the muckraker and that is a phrase from a novel by john bunyan it's not something yeah. in this case that he made up yeah um he digs in the mud and we have to get rid of this we have to get rid of this negativity and this uh, this negative energy um, that's a modern iteration of what he sure, sure and sure. and so muckraker was invented by tr or repurposed as a term of criticism for people who were were spending all their time digging up dirt on people. Um, and yet it's got a very romanticized connotation today, as if Roosevelt said, dig up the dirt, which he did. He just got sick <laughs> of it. And that's the end of that. And we know it wasn't an accident because he gave that uh, a version of that speech again in a more public setting. Gridiron was... Um, you know, professional organization that was off the record, so he put it on the record, and then he wrote it up for a magazine. So he was helping <laughs> on limiting it.
0: Yeah, that's that's a way to make sure people see it. I'll just and write then, it up yeah. in the magazine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> By then, he had been uh, muckraked a little bit, as some papers were charging that he had profited from the uh, all the construction deals attendant to the building of the Panama Canal.
0: Interesting,
1: yeah. Which, right to his the end of his life, they asked him, What was your greatest achievement? and he didn't say, You know, uh, holding getting prices down, breaking the trusts, yeah. Um, uh, he said the Panama Canal, yeah. That was his version, I think, probably because he had been, you know, stuck a little bit by the press on it.
0: Got it, got it. Uh, now you've mentioned some some evolutions in the media you know during tr's life like he he, yellow journalism happened muckraking starts happening the press really grows what was there anything new in particular that he was able to capitalize on um
1: yes and and um i think what the probably roosevelt's greatest i'm not gonna say contribution i guess it's um revolution or sea change in the relationship now mckinley his predecessor had occasionally spoken to the press on the porch of you know on the various porticos of the white house but he <laughs> never had them in you know mm-hmm. never had a group in
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you know lincoln always had a an ap stenographer at his side when he wanted something in the papers or he would deliver a message or a letter even a letter to the editor but roosevelt thought he didn't quite think of doing press conferences but he thought you know he was a he was a multitasker when he wasn't reading he was writing he was doing it at the same time yeah so he every day he his barber would come in uh to the little and now somewhat notorious hallway um next to the the oval office well first he built the oval so whatever it was first and then the oval office which now we know is the place where Bill Clinton hung out for reasons that were not quite appropriate. And it's where Donald Trump watched the rally and uh, the, the, not the rally, the um, insurrection and kept hitting the replay button because he was liking it. So yeah. it's got a, it's got a weird history, this little, this little area. Yeah. But Roosevelt had a barber's chair there. And his barber would come in to shave him every day and clip his hair as needed. So Roosevelt couldn't stand that. It was 40 minutes of idle time. So the press was allowed in. And and they began calling it the barber's hour because TR would answer questions. Now, ostensibly off the record, but if something, if the journalists, and this was true up to Cousin Franklin's time, that press conferences were off the record. Mm. But if the press said, That's really interesting. Can we have that on the record? He might say yes, or he would ask his office to put out a statement reflecting what he'd said so it was official Mm -hmm. and and universally distributed. But this became an extraordinary way for there to be almost a collaboration of interest between the the working journalists. And meanwhile, Roosevelt built them their first press room in the White House. Mm. And there has been a press room ever since, even if Richard Nixon Got rid of them, the where they had been. He didn't want them that close to him, so he built, he covered up Franklin's swimming pool. Yeah, um, that every time we see a press briefing uh, right. with Jen Psaki today, know that she's standing at the deep end of a swimming pool.
0: Yep, uh,
1: covered right. over by uh, I hope something secure. Right. <laughs> when when uh, Ronald Reagan rechristened it, the James Brady briefing room. Uh, after his press secretary, who had been um, shot and grievously wounded at the, during the attempt on Reagan's life, mm-hmm. he had Brady back in. And he said, They said, Well, what's new about this place? You know, they, were, they weren't too sure they had gotten anything for this remodeling. Actually, they got a place where they could do uh, one up. Um, Broadcasts, okay. uh, so they got uh, something, yeah, and he yeah. said, well, "Well, now we have a retractable floor. So <laughs> if any of you people get out of line, we're going to just open the floor." That's, and uh, you know, only Reagan would think of that. I, mm-hmm. I know I'm digressing, because Reagan always brought his movie sensibility into his public comments, and I don't know if you know the movie, "It's a Wonderful Life." Yeah, we're talking not long after Christmas. Well, yeah. Jimmy yeah. Stewart was Ronald Reagan's close friend. And one of the most famous scenes in that movie is when Jimmy Stewart is dancing with Donna Reed and the the covering of the pool opens up and they come really close to falling and then they don't, then they do. And ultimately they dive into the pool and of course they fall in love.
0: I remember that. I actually showed that movie to my fiance for the first time a year ago. So (laughs) classic.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope you have good luck, but you have to worry about a fiance who's never seen the movie. I'm just saying. But <laughs> if, you, if you've if you taken care of that problem,
0: I'm just you. gonna say, okay, like now we're really digressing, but uh, yes, we are. And, and, and like the scale of where the movie, like how it holds up and where it doesn't hold up, he sees, you know, it takes him through the life, seeing all the horrible things that would have happened to people if you weren't alive. And then he's like, what about my wife? What about my wife? And I'm like, I can't tell you what happened to your wife. It's too horrible. It's I'm like but, people are dead. Like people, troops died in the war because now, like, what happened to my wife? She's an old maid. She's a librarian. Oh, like, that's the worst thing. <laughs> Yeah, of what happened? Well, to wow! Not
1: everything, not everything holds up. Right when when his brother says to the richest man in no. town, I cry every time I see it. So <laughs> it's, it's.
0: I mean, it's it's otherwise a wonderful movie. I still recommend it's recommended. But okay, okay, so fantastic okay. movie. Next time we interview, we'll just talk about our favorite movies. Um, jumping back to TR and and how he's handled the press, and, and kind of starting to sum this conversation up too. If you were do a ranking of presidents based on who was best at using the press to ad- advance their positions, to get what they wanted uh, from their career or their administration. of where would you rank TR? Wow. Um,
1: I, I would certainly put him in the top four or five. Yeah. with, with um, and, You know, it's hard to compare them to the 19th century presidents. Absolutely. Although Lincoln, Lincoln was very, very adept at using the press. Um, so I might put him up there. Um, but Franklin, John Kennedy, um, and uh, Donald Trump, because mm. because yeah, his attack he used the new kind of communication, social media, yeah, and built his base by sort of replacing the press. And uh, whatever one thinks of him politically or administratively, um he uh I think he he was very successful at that. in fact, the you know c-span does a poll of presidents yeah um and and i and I'm one of the historians. I mean, it's like being an oscar voter it's very it's very exciting, and you're yeah. not really supposed to talk about it but and they have created new questions this time, which talk to racial uh, equity more than it ever has, and that's a tough one because you have to say. You have to answer the question, did they promote equality and apply it to Jefferson? And the same way you apply it to Lyndon Johnson, it's a little rough. But one of the questions has always been, rank this president in communications ability. Well, I think the reason that Donald Trump came in third to last instead of last is because you can't honestly give him a one in communications ability. He's just too good at it. He may not be good at anything else. In some people's view but he's you cannot unless you you know he just he was i took off a few points for lying to the, <laughs> he still gets a seven you know anyway but yeah. tr was one of the very best um he pushed the borders of what the media could do and uh, uh and do for him and where it could go in the white house and how it could cover him mm-hmm. and we haven't even talked about the uh, his comeback bid which was unsuccessful in 1912 yeah. but which involved his making newsreels and and having the press travel with him in a in a campaign train and his really becoming even closer with journalists than he had been in his white house days because he there were also fits of temper and temperament and blackballing people
0: mm-hmm. he
1: he created a club um um and um if you had the Oyster Bay atmosphere about you, talk about an elite, then you were a mem- then you were in good standing. But if you crossed him, you were banished. And whether the banishment was a week, a month, a year, or eternity depended on your transgression and your willingness to humiliate yourself in apology. So he was a good manager of the press. And I give Roosevelt extra credit, TR. Cause he didn't have a press secretary yeah, anyway, chief of staff, but he's doing this all on his own.
0: Yeah. What's your favorite story of Roosevelt and the press? You've given me a lot of good ones. Are there any you haven't shared yet that, that are just like, Oh, it's a classic.
1: I don't know if I shared this the last time we spoke, but I, it's still my favorite. And, <laughs> and that is that during those barbers hours, the press eventually got a little bit irritated at the fact that TR would keep telling them everything's off the record. and, and, but they also noticed that when, so they increasingly asked him irritating questions because they enjoyed watching him get mad while <laughs> he had the lather on his face. Well, then the, my favorite story is that they reserved the toughest questions to when the barber was shaving, you know, this is a single edged razor, single, yeah, yeah single edged razor, a single blade. When he was cutting at his neck, they would ask him a purposely ask him a tough question or an insulting one and he would jump up and the barber would pull back the razor and say, Mr. President, Mr. President, please. And he would take his bib off and throw it on the ground <laughs> and wipe. And that's so it became a game. They would try to make him angry. Um, that is and terrifying. I, would, I would love to have seen, yeah. uh, as much as I would have loved to have seen, um, you know, an FDR press conference, at least we have one on audio And some photographs and and lots of transcripts. But I would have loved to have borne witness to a Barber's Hour with Teddy Roosevelt.
0: I I am shocked that that's not like a famous movie scene yet. Because it just has all the makings of a fantastic movie scene.
1: Well, you know, there, there are always rumors about a TR movie. Yeah. And maybe I'll get to be an advisor if they ever do it. You know who's interested in it? Leonardo DiCaprio
0: you know, I feel like I read that once. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Once. Right. I mean, it's one of these great unmade projects, but listen, if an actor is interested, sometimes it happens, especially someone with his power and prestige. So maybe it can happen. And I think, yeah, look inside the White House at dealing with the press would be fantastic.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the legacy of Roosevelt's relationship with the press?
1: The legacy is that you cannot be Um, distant from the press. After TR, if you were distant, you were unsuccessful. And we know that, well, Calvin Coolidge was a man of very, very, very few words and very controlled emotions, but he did give press access. Um, And his flinty personality was kind of um, amusing to people and uh, appealing to people. And uh, his wife kind of made up for his stiffness by being very extroverted and quite lovely, and uh, maybe the first glamorous first lady, although we don't think too much of Grace Coolidge, but she was. Um, Hoover paid a price for demanding that questions be submitted in advance. So um, TR set the bar, even if no one, until his cousin Franklin revived that. And then after FDR, access Is required, definitely required. It may have taken, you know, 25 years to catch up to what Teddy had made part of the culture. But I give Teddy credit for um, after Teddy, if you wanted to be successful with the press and therefore with, with the public, you had to be open and
0: accessible. And last, colorful,
1: somewhat colorful. Yeah,
0: absolutely, that helps. Uh, last question I got for you. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from uh, Teddy and particularly how he handled the press? Well,
1: the lesson is to to be available, to be out there, um, to not be rehearsed. I know we're hearing a lot today about over-rehearsal. Um, to... Um, and to have you know your own thoughts and be able to express them. I mean, Roosevelt was unique in that. Um, although Lincoln had owned a newspaper once, um, and of course, in I got to get the year right, nineteen twenty, the two republic the Republican and Democratic candidates for president were both newspaper editors, owners, yep. editors, yep. Cox and uh, Harding. And Harding both, both from what within
0: Ohio, right? 80
1: miles of each other in Ohio. Right. <laughs> That's uh, a
0: unique kind of newspaper war.
1: <laughs> that is a real newspaper war. I should have written more about that too. I mentioned it, but um, Teddy actually was offered a job as a New York daily newspaper editor after his presidency, after his uh, loss in 1912, late in his life. And he sort of said, you know, I would really love to do it. I don't think I, but he had just signed a contract with a magazine to provide like monthly columns. I think it was the outlook and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. Now with Teddy, maybe that's the other lesson we learned. You can't take the bridge too far. You can't, um, uh, again, that's part of his legacy of being the bride, the corpse and, and the baby at the, Wedding, funeral, and christening. You can't be your own, you can't do your own coverage exclusively. And if Roosevelt had had his way, he would have been the reporter, the editor, and the newsmaker, and the censor, and the public relations specialist. The, the amazing thing is how close he became to being all of those.
0: Absolutely. Uh, if you'd like to hear more from Harold, please check out his book, The Presidents Versus the Press The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Thank you so much for your time, Harold.
1: Kenny, it's always great. It was a pleasure. Be well.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice, and tell your friends about the show. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll be delighted to be joined by Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky to discuss the fascinating cast of characters who made up Roosevelt's cabinet and... TR's doomed bromance with Secretary of War William Howard Taft. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry I criticized your fiancé. That was out of bounds.